Here's how he says it. He's going he's gonna to avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. So why specifically is God's judgment coming? What has Jezebel been doing for years? What had she done for years? Anybody who stood in her way, anybody who worshipped the true God, anybody who spoke out against her immediately got a bullseye put on their forehead. And Jezebel did everything she could to either eradicate them from the land or to completely eliminate them. She killed dozens and dozens at least, if not hundreds or thousands, of prophets that she has killed during all of this period. And what we're being reminded of now is that God took notice of every one of them. God had a tally. All of these people who have been murdered by Jezebel or mistreated by Jezebel, God had noticed every single one of them. And what's happening now is God is getting ready to avenge the blood of his people. Okay, so make sure you have room in your view of God for that. God is getting ready to avenge the mistreatment of his people. Okay, so that's what this judgment is coming for. So he's going to make the house of uh, Ahab like the house of Jeroboam and like the house of Basha. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 11. Then Jehu came out to the servants of his master and one said to him, Is all well? Why did this madman come to you? And he said to them, You know the man and his babble. And they said, Allah, tell us now. So he said, Thus and thus he spoke to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. And then each man hastened to take his garment and put it under him on top of the steps. And they blew the trumpets, saying, Jehu is king. Imagine what an unusual scene this is for all the guys who had been sitting here with Jehu. This guy who they apparently aren't very familiar with. Maybe they know he's in some way a prophet. He calls Jehu aside. A few minutes later, the guy bolts out the door, and then Jehu comes walking out. And Jehu has just heard this very heavy message. So it had to have been etched all over his face. Something weighty is happening here. Not to mention, what had the prophet just done with Jehu? He's anointed him with oil. So unless he took a shower first, he's got hair that's matted down with oil, maybe running down his beard, and he comes walking back to the group, and they say to him, what, what's going on? And initially, Jehu just tries to brush it aside. It's crazy talk. But they know something more significant is happening, and as they press him, Jehu finally says, he came to tell me that the Lord has anointed me king over Israel. And when he says that, how do the men respond? Remember, there was a question, are they going to be for him? Are they going to be against him? How do the men respond? It's like it gives them a jolt of life. Everybody right away throws their support. Now, the fact that all of these men immediately throw their support behind Jehu, what does that tell you about their attitude toward King Joram? That there's apparently no love lost between the military commanders and Joram because we're not told about any man who stands up and goes, wait a second now, we can't rebel against the king. They, they immediately lay their garments down. That was a way of saying, we are under your authority. We're putting ourselves in submission. You have our loyalty. So they line themselves up. But we're, we're even told they blow the trumpet. That's the shofar. That's making an official announcement. So they're letting all of the soldiers there know Jehu has now been anointed king. Here's the next step of this. So Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram 
Now it gives us, reminds us of the backstory. Now Joram had been defending Ramoth Gilead, he and all Israel, against Hazael, king of Syria. But King Joram had returned to Jezreel to re recover from the wounds which the Syrians had inflicted on him when he fought with Hazael, king of Syria. And Jehu said, if you are so minded, let no one leave or escape from the city to go and tell it in Jezreel. So Jehu rode in a chariot and, ridden, and went to Jezreel, for Joram was laid up there. And Ahaziah, king of Judah, had come down to see Joram. Okay, so the king has gone about 45 miles west, back on the other side of the Jordan River, to Jezreel. And what is it that Jehu's concerned about here? He wants, all, he, he wants to keep the element of surprise on his side. So he knows if anybody's able to slip out of Ramoth Gilead and they get ahead of him and they let the king know what's happening, it's going to give him a chance to prepare. He'll be able to get soldiers together. He'll be able to flee. Maybe none of this is going to work out. So they basically lock down Ramoth Gilead. Jehu gets a group of soldiers, mounts his chariot, and they tear off going 40 miles west to Jezreel. Here's the next scene. Verse 17. Now a watchman stood on the tower in Jezreel, and he saw the company of Jehu as he came and said, I see a company of men. And Joram said, get a horseman and send him to meet them and let him say, is it peace? So the horseman went to him and said, thus says the king, is it peace? And Jehu said, what have you to do with peace? Turn around and follow me. So the watchman reported saying, the messenger went to them but is not coming back. And then he sent out a second horseman who came to them and said, Thus says the king, is it peace? And Jehu answered, what have, I, what have you to do with peace? Turn around and follow me. So the watchman reported saying, He went up to them and is not coming back. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. Anybody in your family known by how they drive? That's Jehu. And then Joram said, Make ready. And his chariot was made ready. And then Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, went out, each in his chariot. And they went out to meet Jehu and met him on the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Now, there's a lot of interesting things going on there. Imagine, first of all, being the watchman of the city of Jezreel. Okay, imagine what life was like as a watchman. You have, you have been told that the whole welfare of the city depends on you. Your job is so important. But what is life like typically for a watchman? You just stand there and stare at nothing every day. But not this day. This watchman is standing on the wall and he sees a cloud of smoke in the distance, of dust rising. And he knows what that is. That is a group of riders coming their way and they're coming from the east. So he sends word down to the king, hey, there are riders coming from the east. Well, Joram cannot figure out what these riders would be coming his way for. Um, there's a battle going on, so maybe they're coming with word from the front. So he gets a messenger to go out and meet the riders and ask, what's going on? Is there peace? The rider goes out, sees Jehu, and what does Jehu say to him? He basically says, there's not going to be any peace today. You better get in line behind me. And what does the rider do? He gets in line behind him, which means basically what the rider does is the rider in an instant flips sides. He leaves his loyalty to the king and gives his loyalty to Jehu. Well, the watchman's looking at all this. He can't tell the details of it, but he knows the messenger's not coming back. And which, by the way, was a huge breach of protocol. If a messenger went out from the king 
you told the king what you were coming for, the messengers went back, you gave the king time to process what was happening. Well, none of that happens here. So he sends out a second messenger. The same thing happens. Well, by this time, the watchmen on the wall, they're close enough that he can tell, by the way, one of these guys is driving the chariot, that's Jehu. And that's, this is probably said in a good way. It's probably saying that Jehu is such a, uh, a skilled soldier that he could handle a chariot like nobody else could handle a chariot. So he can tell that's Jehu coming our way. Well, now the king is absolutely perplexed. He, he apparently doesn't anticipate this going badly, but he doesn't know what they're coming for. So he gets on his own chariot. He gets the king of Judah to get on his chariot, and they ride out together to meet Jehu. But there's a huge little nugget dropped at the end of that. Where is it that they end up meeting Jehu at? What a great coincidence. Here's God's providence at work again. Of all the places, remember, Jehu's been traveling in, messengers have gone out, messengers have gone out. Now the kings go out and they run into him, they stop him right as he gets to the piece of property that had been owned by Naboth. Do you remember Naboth's story? Naboth was the guy way back in uh, 1 Kings something. Um, who had a prime piece of real estate right there at Jezreel. In fact, it was such a prime piece of real estate that King Ahab decided he needed it. So he went to, to Naboth and said, I will either give you money for it or I will trade another piece of property. And what did Naboth say? No. And he didn't say no because he was stubborn. He said no because he was faithful. God had given Israel very specific commands about the land. And the principle was that God owned the land. And so God would decide which tribe got which portion of land. Um, there were inheritance rules. God's plan was that once a tribe was given land, it would stay with that tribe and stay with that family forever. You couldn't just willy-nilly decide you were going to trade land. Now, that thought never crossed Ahab's mind, but it was serious business to Naboth, so he turns him down. And how does King Ahab respond to being turned down? like a five-year-old petulant kid. He goes up to his room and refuses to eat supper and lays on his bed and pouts. And when his wife Jezebel comes up upstairs, you get the idea that she's almost disgusted with her husband when she finds out what's going on. Because kings, in her view, don't ask for things. Kings just take what they want. And so she decides she's going to do what her husband failed to do. So she hatches this sinister plot where she has Naboth set up as if he blasphemed God. It's all slander. It's all a lie. Naboth gets executed, but there's still a problem. If a man got, if he died, what would happen to his land? Well, it would just get passed to his family. So not only does Jezebel have Naboth killed, she has Naboth's children killed just so that her and her husband can have this prime piece of real estate. And, that, and that's really the event in 1 Kings that brings the judgment of God to a head. It is right after that that God thunders down through Elijah this message of judgment that Ahab's going to die, the family line's going to be cut off, Jezebel's going to die this horrible death. Okay, that, that's all happened with Naboth. Well, now when they get out there, you now have the king, the son of Naboth, and where does he meet Jehu? They just happen to meet right on this piece of land where all of this trouble had started. Do you, do you see how there's, there's even irony in God's providence? That God orchestrates this. So here's this man where this whole problem started with this man of God being treated unjustly. And God orchestrates it so they meet up with each other right on that piece of property. And here's, here's how it goes down from there. Verse 22. Now it happened when Joram saw Jehu that he said, Is it peace, Jehu? And so he answered, 
what peace? As long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcraft are so many. So is it peace? Yeah, you, he immediately insults his mom. As long as the harlotries and the witchcraft of your mom fill this land, there will never be peace. Then Joram, and, and I should just say, you know harlotries, adulteries, is often used in the Bible as a metaphor for idolatry. And that's how it's being used here. That here, here are people who Jezebel had compelled to stop giving their worship and their affection to God, and they've started giving their worship and affection to idols. That's their harlotry. And then witchcraft is just all of the uh, religious practices and incantations and dark worship that are tied up in worshiping Baal. And he's saying, until all that's purged from the land, there will be no peace. Well, by this point, Joram figures out what's going on. Joram turned around and fled and said to Ahaziah, treachery, Ahaziah. Now Jehu drew his bow with full strength and shot Jehoram between his arms. And the arrow came out at his heart. And he sank down in his chariot. And then Jehu said to Bidkar, his captain, pick him up and throw him into the track of the field of Naboth, the Jezreelite. For remember when you and I were riding together behind Ahab, his father, that the Lord laid this burden upon him. Surely I saw yesterday, the, he's recounting now, we find out no, Jehu had actually been with Ahab when all of this had happened. Surely I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, says the Lord, and I will repay you in this plot, says the Lord. Now therefore take and throw him on the plot of ground according to the word of the Lord. But when Ahaziah, king of Judah, saw this, he fled by the road to Beth Hagen. So Jehu pursued him and said, shoot him also in the chariot. And they shot him at the ascent of Gur, which is by Iblium. And then he fled to Megiddo and died there. And his servants carried him in the chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in his tomb with his fathers in the city of David. In the 11th year of Joram, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah had become king over Judah. So what, what happens? Joram realizes that there is a revolt afoot and he turns in his chariot and takes off. Well, Jehu is a skilled soldier. He grabs his bow. He draws it back to full strength. The arrow hits him right between the shoulder blades in his back, punctures his heart. Ahab's son slouches down. Okay, but the king of the southern empire is there too. And he manages to get a little bit more of a head start. So they have to go after him in hot pursuit. They finally track him down and King Ahaziah is killed as well. So now both kings have been assassinated. Ahaziah is taken back home to Jerusalem and he's given a proper burial. But what do they do with the body of Ahab's son? They throw it out on that plot of land that had been stolen from Naboth. So all of this is just hammering home the point. This is happening according to the righteous judgment of God. His body is thrown out on this land. Okay, so here's, there's two things that are still lingering here, and I want to make sure we get to one of them. Jump forward to verse 30. Because who have we not heard from yet? Ahab's son's dead. Ahab's dead. What about Jezebel? Now, when Jehu had come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. And she put paint on her eyes and adorned her head and looked through a window. And then as Jehu entered at the gate, she said, is it peace, Zimri, murderer of your master? So here's, here's what's happening. Remember, all of this is happening just outside of Jezreel. So the kings had left Jezreel. They had run into Jehu. Jehu had killed him. He had had to chase after Ahaziah. So that by the time they come back to Jezreel, everybody in town knows what's happening. The kings have been killed. There's a rebellion afoot. 
And so Je- uh, uh, Jezebel knows about it. And what does she do? She fixes herself up. She puts her makeup on. She puts her on her royal garb. Now, some folks think that what she's doing here, she's getting ready to try to seduce um, Jehu when he gets there. I don't think that's what's happening. Because as soon as he gets there, the first thing she does is insult him. These are not seductive words. I think, so, I think what's happening here is she is determined that she is going to go out in style. She's going to go out. If Jezebel is nothing else, she is prideful. And so she is going to go out like the royalty that she is. So she gets dressed up and as Jehu, I mean, she has some backbone to her. As he comes riding into the city, she looks out from an upper window and what does she say to him? It's just dripping with sarcasm. Is there peace, Jehu? She knows there's no peace. And what does she call him? Zimri, murderer of your master. Now that's back to 1 Kings. Zimri was this guy who, like Jehu, had been a commander of the army. And like Jehu, he had started a rebellion. And like Jehu, Zimri had murdered the king. Only Zimri's rebellion was not very well thought out. Because he kills the king to become king, but the army doesn't follow him. They follow another man named Omri. And so Zimri only ends up reigning as king for seven days before he ends up getting killed. So do you see what she's saying to Jehu when she calls him Zimri? She's saying, you're a traitor, you're a murderer, but what else is she calling him? She's basically calling him a fool. That you might have the throne, but you're not going to sit on the throne very long. You're going to be just like Zimri. You're going to die an ignoble death just like, just like he died. Okay, this is why I said, this is not seductive language. Um, Jezebel's godless, but Jezebel is gutsy. So here's what Jehu does. And he, that's Jehu, he looked up at the window and said, who's on my side? Who? So two or three eunuchs looked out at him. And then he said, throw her down. So they threw her down and we get even details of what happened when she hit the ground. And some of her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses. And he trampled her underfoot. So she smarts off to Jehu. She's up there surrounded by her servants. And Jehu looks up and says, who's on my side? And two of her male attendants look down and nod. And Jehu says, take her and throw her out the window. So imagine the scene of of Jezebel who's now fixed herself. She's all dolled up. And these two guys grab her and they chunk her out the window. And she hits with a splat. And blood splatters up on the wall. And then just to make sure, make sure she's dead, as they ride into town, they trample her with, her with their horses. So this is how Jezebel comes to an end. Okay, so she's thrown off a wall and then trampled by horses. That's the end. Of, and by the way, you're, you're supposed to read that and we, you're supposed to cheer at this point of the story. I mean, that's the way the whole thing has been. It's like um, when the wicked witch of the whichever it is dies in the story and everybody's ding, ding dong and the witch is dead sort of thing. That's what this is meant to be. If you're an Israelite and you're reading this, you are cheering at this point of the story because Jezebel has been the prime villain in the story. She has blasphemed God. She has terrorized the people of God. So this is not like something you hang your head about. You're supposed to read this as good news. The enemy of God and the enemy of God's people has finally faced God's judgment. And she's lying dead outside of the city. And here's what Jehu does. Ah, we're out of time. Give me a couple more verses and we'll be done. And when he had gone in, this is Jehu, when he had gone in, he ate and drank. That cracks me up about Jehu because it tells us something about him. He has just murdered two kings and he has just watched Jezebel splat on the ground and he's trampled her with his horse and he goes in and he's ready to eat. Okay, so that, right, that tells us something about the the sort of man Jehu is. And then he said, 
So this is after he's eaten. He said, go now, see to this accursed woman and bury her, for she was a king's daughter. In other words, he eats his meal, he settles down a little bit, and he, he thinks, you know, she is a queen. We should at least bury her. So he tells a couple of his servants to go get her body. Here's what they find. So they went to bury her, but they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. And therefore, they came back and told him, and he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying, On the plot of ground at Jezreel, dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as refuse on the surface of the field in the plot at Jezreel, so that they shall not say, Here lies Jezebel. Okay, so he sends them out to bury her, but they go out there, and what do they find? Yeah, that he and his men haven't been the only ones feasting. There's been another feast going on outside the gate. There's all sorts of scavenger dogs roaming the Judean countryside, and they have come to Jezebel's body, and they have picked it apart so that all is left are the palms of her hands and her feet and her skull, meaning he sent them to bury her. There's not enough left to bury. And it dawns on him that this is exactly what God had said was going to happen to Jezebel. So Jezebel dies under the judgment of God. You see how that's the sort of ringing theme of these verses. God's promises are true, including promises of judgment. Let me read one more verse with you, okay, before we dismiss. Listen to Exodus 34. You see it there, but I apparently forgot to put it in. This is just a good reminder about God's absolute determination to judge, how that's part of God's character. Look, Exodus 34. Verses 6 and 7. I want you to notice two parts of this. This is God speaking to Moses. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. It says, And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. This is God telling Moses who he is. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Uh, so that, that has been called the riddle of the Old Testament. If you have your Bibles open, do you see why that would be called the riddle of the Old Testament? Were you paying attention when I read that? It's called the riddle of the Old Testament because on the one hand, God says that he will not clear the guilty. In other words, God will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. God will always. In fact, God must punish guilt. He's not going to sweep it under the rug. Every single guilty person and every single episode of guilt will be dealt with by God. That's one side. But God also says in Exodus 34 that he forgives sins. Well, how can it be both? How can God be determined that he will not clear the guilty? Every guilty person will be punished. How can God be determined to punish the guilty and say that he'll forgive the guilty at the same time? Do you see why this is called the riddle of the Old Testament? And we know that this is a riddle that, that ultimately gets solved in the New Testament, in the person of Jesus, where we find out that the way God punishes the guilty and forgives sinners is by sending his son to bear our guilt. So what's... His robes for mine that we sang this morning is a great example of that. That Christ was accursed in our place. That he bore our, our sin. So that, uh, I'll say this and then we'll be done. So th this is, I just want to highlight God's judgment and, and remind us of how that relates to us on the cross. 
So you realize there will not be a single sin in the end that will be unpunished. Every single sin will receive justice. Either you will be punished for those sins, or you look to Christ who was punished for those sins in your place. But in the end, there will not be a single sin that is ignored by God. Every single sin will receive perfect justice. That's why, um, man, I, I could give two more minutes, but that's why when you get some of these pictures in the Bible of forgiveness, 1 John 1, 9, what does 1 John 1, 9 say? If we, come on, if we confess our sins, he is faithful in what to forgive our sins? What does justice have to do with forgiveness? Well, he's saying that now God's forgiveness is perfectly just because for everyone who looks to Jesus, punishment has already been meted out. So he's the God who does not clear the guilty and he's the God who forgives. And all that was brought together for us at the cross where Christ bore our guilt. That's judgment going on in these chapters. We got even more judgment coming next week because there's still something hanging out there. God said that the whole dynasty was going to be done away with. His kids are going to be wiped out. Well, his kids are still around. He still has sons who are wanting to take the throne. And we'll see what happens to them next week. All right.